Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So first I'm just, in my own mind, cognizant there are probably two different realities here. <clears throat> and <clears throat> want to first honor those who are here for two months and are deep in practice um, <clears throat> and also acknowledge that uh, many of you have started the process of transition and I hope it's been a uh, relatively gentle um, beginning. And I hope you learn as much from these next couple of days as, you know, as you've learned in the previous weeks, because uh, it's a very rich time. Um, anyway, I just wanted to name that. <clears throat> So we've, we've had a talk on faith. That's come up a few times in the retreat so far. I shared a, a story uh, in the talk I gave on uh, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion um, about loving the Dharma and uh, tonight I'm going to go all the way and offer a talk on devotion. Now just see how that word lands for you. I have a feeling some people are saying, oh, fantastic. And others are saying, oh, devotion. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that. So just wherever you are, Inside, you just honor it, and hopefully there'll be um, something useful for you, whether you're inspired or there's resistance or a longing, oh, I wish I had that quality, I wish I could access that. I certainly know um, that, that longing, that wish. And I just invite you to <clears throat> translate that word or this theme into a, <clears throat> a different word that resonates for you, whether you think of it as um, heartfelt commitment or a, a deep sincerity. Because um, words have power. And so uh, I don't want you to get stuck on that name that word, but just pointing to something that's in the faith field, but maybe um, a little bit deeper. So maybe before we go on, I just invite you to um, just reflect inside. What's your relationship to either the word devotion or 
what word or words for you uh, could resonate. And again, knowing that whatever your experience is, is absolutely just right for you. Okay. So I first I want to start out with a sharing of a passage by one of the clearest, most uh, brilliant scholars, the head of the Buddhist Publication Society for many, many years. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's mentor, who then became Venerable Analio's mentor, um, Yanapanika Tara, who uh, has written, who wrote so many different um, treatises on the Dharma besides translating. So this is what he says about devotion in practice. It would be a mistake to conclude that the Buddha disparaged a reverential and devotional attitude of mind when it is the natural outflow of a true understanding and a deep admiration of what is great and noble. It would also be a grievous error to believe that the seeing of the Dhamma is identical with a mere intellectual appreciation and purely conceptual grasp of the doctrine. Such a one-sided, abstract approach to the very concrete message of the Buddha all too often leads to intellectual smugness. In its barrenness, it will certainly not be a substitute for the strong and enlivening impulse imparted by a deep felt devotion to what is known as great, noble, and exemplary. Devotion being a facet and natural accompaniment of confidence or sadha is a necessary factor in the balance of faculties required for final deliverance. Confidence in all its aspects, including the devotional, is needed to resolve any stagnation and other shortcomings resulting from a one-sided development of the intellectual faculties. Such development often tends to turn around in circles endlessly without being able to effect a breakthrough. Here, devotion, confidence, and faith, all aspects of the Pali term sadha, may be able to give quick and effective help. When the teachings were brought to the West from our lineage holders, 
um, particularly uh, brought from Asia from, uh, by Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg. Um, they wanted to make it as accessible as possible for uh, Western students. And so it was a kind of a um, stripped-down version, but as far as devotion went. But devotion is really um, prevalent uh, throughout Asian monasteries. Jack, when he was a monk, he, he talks about how you know, bowing was just what you did, as he said, if it moves, you bow. <laughs> Whoever's going by, you're bowing, you're continually bowing. And there's a kind of, maybe you've seen that, you know, a kind of, even the gesture, uh, which you might not even feel it in your heart, but when you physically do that gesture, it evokes, it almost uh, um, compels a kind of reverential moment in there, just to bow and honor. And it's a beautiful thing, you know, unless it's not a beautiful thing and it's a turn off or it gets confusing. What is that all about? And so again, and just being wherever you are, but maybe you've seen and probably have touched that quality of, of reverence um, for the teachings and, and maybe the gesture of, of bowing um, helps you connect with that. <clears throat> the Buddha himself talked about uh, in one, uh, one uh, explanation, two kinds of followers, two kinds of, of practitioners. There are what he called Dhamma followers and faith followers. And Dhamma followers are those who, through um, a, a deep understanding of the teachings, the wisdom eye uh, can arise and you see clearly, and then there is awakening. <clears throat> By a, by a real grasp and understanding and putting into practice of the teachings. Faith followers are those who have such um, faith and reverence and devotion to, to the Buddha and to the, the teachings that that is their doorway through. And he says, they both lead to awakening. But often the faith followers kind of, it feels like a second, second class citizenship, you know. Um, but he said, yes, take refuge. He says, take refuge in me. Take refuge in, in what I'm sharing. Trust me and what I'm saying. And that can be enough. 
then you put into practice what I'm saying. But if this is the doorway, yes, take refuge in me. Buddhism, especially Theravadan Buddhism, um, can seem lacking in this quality that's so prevalent in most every other uh, religion, whether it's um, seeing Jesus as a savior or uh, in Islam, the word Islam, my understanding is submission to something greater, Allah. Judaism also deeply devotional. If you've, if you, you know, when I was when I was younger, and I'd I'd go to um, to temple, and the the you could feel the reverence when people were were praying, davening. It's called, and there's a kind of uh, sometimes it seemed like just a, a you know something that you did, uh, but but sometimes you could feel the feeling in the uh, in the prayer. Uh, the prayers. But Buddhism is, is different. All of those other spiritual forms have a kind of creator, God or savior or somebody to be devoted to. Buddhism, as I think you know by now, there's not a creator that you are devoted to. And it's sometimes called the path with no railings. The path with no railings. Because there's not something to lean on. Some, some body, something out there that you can depend on. Who will protect you and take care of you. And so it can seem that that part is is missing and we can long for it. Um, And even within Buddhism, particularly Theravadan Buddhism, um, there is that, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's guru yoga, where you have uh, uh, your, your teacher, your master, who you take on as the embodiment of the Buddha. And so there's that devotion right in there, devotion to the lineage, to your, to your guru, teacher. In Theravadan, the, the, the closest analogy is Kalyanamita, spiritual friend. Not, I'm not a guru, I'm just you know, somebody who, who knows the path and can walk with you. And share what, what I know. That's what your one's teacher is. A Kalyana. And it's a beautiful. There's a kind of. When I, f- when I heard that. There was a kind of relief. That I didn't have to. Bow down to some teacher. But oh. Like me. They're not so different from me. And yet they know something that I want to. I want to discover for myself. So it's a beautiful idea, an ideal Kalyanamita, but it's not that, you know, heartfelt surrender. 
And there's something that comes from a deep surrender of me controlling the show into something bigger than me. We need to open to something bigger than us so we can surrender to to get us out of our small self that thinks, oh, how can I fix things? How can I make it secure? How can I, you know, and when you see, oh, no, I'm not running the show here. It's both a... um, a comforting understanding and revelation. Oh, it's not up to me to control the show, but it can also be like, whoa, well, how, how does the show happen? And what am I, you know, where's, where's my security? I'm just thinking of um, a great Alan Watts book. The, the title is so good. The wisdom of insecurity. That's what we're being asked to Surrender to in this path with no railings. But I want to both point to some uh, elements of the teachings that can perhaps, um, yeah, open you to um, 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 an accessing or at least a practicing of more of this quality, as well as share some, some other teachings from, from outside of Theravadan Buddhism. Uh, because they're all, you know, as, um, I don't know if I said it here before that, yeah, I think I did from Joseph's book, One Dharma. There is one Dharma, not many Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. And so there are many fingers pointing to the moon. So I will share a few other fingers that I hope are aligned and um, support your your practice. But first from the teachings, from the Pali Canon teachings... Uh, we've talked about sadha, to, to put one's heart upon, a wholehearted quality. Um, but there's a, a, another list that I want to uh, talk about briefly that even more directly can point to this quality of heartfelt commitment, devotion. Uh, and this this small list of four is in a larger list. I'm going to give you, you thought the, the, the fourth foundation was, was had a lot of lists in it. Well, I want to share with you, uh, just name the, the list of the 37 requisites of enlightenment. Okay. You ready? Okay. Don't worry. It's going to go very fast, except this one part of the list is not so well known is the Eightfold Path. There's the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. That's 15. There's the Five Faculties, up to 20. Five Faculties ripen as the Five Spiritual Powers, 25. 
four foundations of mindfulness. 29. Four right efforts or wise efforts. Remember we talked about abandoning, guarding against abandoning and cultivating and increasing four wise efforts up to 33. And then this other lesser known list is called the four idipadas, the four bases of success or bases of power. Idipadas, and the word idi from in Sanskrit, I-D-D-H-I, is like the word siddhi in uh, Sanskrit. Somebody who has cities has powers. Well, these are the four idipadas. I'll just mention, go through them briefly and particularly focus on one of them. And so these are the, the sources of your uh, um, inspiration for practice because we need it to be motivated for, for practice. And it's really difficult if you're doing it half-heartedly. So this is getting in touch with what really moves you to practice. And there are four different kinds of temperaments. You know, passion, I think of this as spiritual passion. Passion is not a, a big word in Buddhism. It's more dispassion. Um, but we need to have passion around practice. Mm. Yeah, equanimity is not passivity. You mean working with equanimity for a while. It's not, certainly not indifference, but it also includes a kind of mm, juice in practice. This is from that great Theravadan, William Blake. Uh, no. <laughs> who said, those who enter the kingdom of heaven are not the ones who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but those who've developed an understanding of them. So the idipadas, chanda idipada is the first, which is, and you might just see which seems to be more your temperament. And we're all, we're not just one, we have a combination, but you can see which ones you know, are, are more um, resonant for you. Chanda idipada, when somebody who has zeal or enthusiasm just a strong, wholehearted enthusiasm. You know, I, I have a very passionate side, and um, it, it's just yeah, and not it's not for everybody. Some people say, "Well, it's a little bit too much," but that's that's who I am. Uh, so I, it took me a while to accept it. Uh, but the key for me getting into this whole this whole Dharma stuff was remember I, in that 1974 when I, uh, when I was so blown away by the teachings and hearing Joseph and, and about the fourth class or so, I remembered that I was wearing my New York Knicks shirt because I was a season, season ticket holder to the New York Knicks. I'm a huge basketball fan. Not the Knicks now. Golden State Warriors, yes. <laughs> and I had this awful thought and it was the first time I ever approached Joseph because it was so awesome being around him. And I said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? 
Yes. I said, I'm a season ticket holder to Madison Square Garden to see the Knicks. Am I going to go to the basketball game and go, oh, very nice shot, Frazier. <laughs> Good pass, Havlicek. Yeah, yeah. Because I wasn't ready to sign up for it. And he, he gave me a, just the, the best possible answer. He said, you'll still have your passion probably. You'll just get over a loss sooner. I said, okay, sign me up. <laughs> so that's this Chanda Idipada. If you're somebody who has that, that temperament, not everybody does. Then there's virya idipada, you know the word virya, energy, um, energy for practice, undaunted, just heroic effort, uh, like I I mentioned that that Burmese master, abandon all concern for the body. This is, (laughs) yeah, this is from the Buddha before he was enlightened. He made this determination. If the end is attainable by human effort, I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. Imagine coming into the hall with that determination. So, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't mess around. He was going for it. That's virya idipada. Nothing will deter you. And some people just have that, that determination, aditana, resolve, strong resolve. Then there's a, a third, it's actually fourth in the classical list, but I'll, I'll save the fourth for, for last. The third is called, or the, this one is called Vimamsa Idipada. And that is the, the inspiration that comes from um, a very uh, deep investigation as to our situation here. Remember, I talked about some Vega earlier. In, in the retreat, seeing the, the meaninglessness of, of, of the life cycle as it's normally lived, where you see, oh, this is in the, in the Tibetan, uh, I think it's in Theravadan also, they're called the four mind changers, where you reflect on the preciousness of this human birth. It's amazingly incredible karma that you were born, that we were all born into a human form. One of my favorite facts about this is from uh, Wes Nisker's book, uh, Buddha's Nature. It's just come out as um, Being Nature. That's, it's been republished. Where he says, in your mouth right now are more organisms than have been human beings since the beginning of time. Wow. Okay. So this is amazing that you were born and born a human. And then another mind changer to reflect on impermanence and on, and on death that life goes by so fast that 
it makes you want to be here for it and use it wisely. Or to reflect on the law of cause and effect, to reflect on karma and the seeds that you're planting are bearing fruit in every single moment. And also reflecting on the defects of samsara, the shortcomings of samsara, the disease of more, that there's no lasting happiness, that there are those heavenly messengers of old age, sickness, death, there's loss. So seeing that and really having a, a, a deep inquiry into our situation here, like the Buddha says, oh, if we understood we're, we're like children playing with our toys while the house is on fire. And once you kind of see it, if it moves you, you really want to make use of your time. So those are the three of the Idipadas. The fourth Idipada is called Chitta Idipada. Heart, mind. Chitta is the word for heart or mind. Chitta Idipada. And in this sense, <clears throat> it's the inspiration that arises after you yourself have tasted the Dharma and you've fallen in love with the Dharma. And everything else seems to pale in comparison with what you've touched and what you want to deepen and deepen. And there's a kind of purity of heart that gets activated that makes you want to keep on going like a, like a moth to a flame. <clears throat> in in uh, Joseph calls this uh, one of the road to fulfillment. One of the four, he has a, a chapter in insight meditation, the, the roads to fulfillment. And he says, this is what he says. A strong love for the Dharma, the love for the truth that keeps our mind continually absorbed in the practice, extremely ardent. <clears throat> love for the Dharma has that level of intensity, like the thought of your beloved, etc., <clears throat> etc. Et Maybe as I went through that list, you might reflect on, oh, which is, is there one is there one that's me? Um, probably. You're here for a month or two months. Yeah. But if you've tasted the Dharma, it's not like, oh, I'm that and not that. As you taste the Dharma more and more, then you know for yourself, <clears throat> verified faith, you are wanting to go deeper and deeper often. If you have that feeling, that's your doorway to this quality of devotion. This is from one of my main teachers, not a, not a Buddhist teacher, um, uh, an Advaita teacher, Punjaji, also known as Papaji, who was a, a Dharma heir of Ramana Maharshi. <clears throat> he says, the desire for freedom is the most, our most intense desire 
All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall, you see. The desire for freedom is intense and you must respond to it. When you respond, this desire will bring you back home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled. This desire must be fulfilled whether you like it or not. Well, here's Nisargadat from I Am That. Nisargadat Maharaj. When the mind is kept away from its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. If you do not disturb this quiet and stay in it, you find that it is permeated with a light and a love you've never known, and yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you have passed through this experience, you will never be the same again. So let's explore a little bit about devotion in practice. <clears throat> First, um, something that um, should name is that, yeah, devotion has its, its uh, cautionary side. You know, you can have faith, but it can become blind faith. And there's a story in the Buddha's time of one of his disciples, Vakali, who um, just fell in love with the Buddha. And he'd sit in at the front and just stare and gaze at the, at the Buddha uh, whenever he'd give a discourse. And after a while, the Buddha kind of, you know, well... He saw what was going on uh, and he said, this is, this is not, this is not what I'm, what I want this person to cultivate. And so he, he threw him out of the Sangha. He said, you have to leave. And Vakali was so bereft being rejected by his his love, his love object, that he was about to throw himself over a cliff because he couldn't go on. And as the story goes, all good Buddhist stories, <clears throat> around the Buddha anyway, the Buddha sees what he's about to do and with his supranormal powers, uh, appears in front of Vakali before he, he does it. He says, don't do it, Vakali. Don't do it. And then he says, don't you see, you can look at this form, stare at this form for a hundred years and still not see the Buddha. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. And with that, he kind of breaks the spell and he allows Vakali to come back in to the, um, to the monastic uh, sangha, and as in all good stories, ends up being fully enlightened. So, <laughs> yes. <clears throat> so you don't want to have a kind of blind faith. <clears throat> But we do need something to take us out of our, our self 
in, in, the, in our darkest hour, was the, the universal prayer, help. There's something deep inside of us that is needing to reach out to something bigger. And when somebody is so, so much at the bottom of their barrel, where they're absolutely, they have, they don't know what to do. And they say, I give up. Have you ever, you know, that place where you maybe have touched and say, I give up. That's a very profound thing to say. I is giving up. And so there is a surrender to something much bigger, which is often how people become born again. You know, in the dark, the darkest hour is just before dawn, as the, as the saying goes, where we're ready to give up and then we open up, please help. Even, even the prayer, please help. You're aligning yourself instead of the confused fear of, oh, this is just going to go down to a hell realm. When you go like this, you're looking for something bigger. Please help. And that prayer can align you and open you to some something larger than yourself in a support. So what are we surrendering to? What are we calling out to? <clears throat> this is not a small question. <clears throat> uh, the, there's a line by the Buddha. He says, however one conceives it, it is other than that. Just try that on for size. And in, uh, in theistic religions, uh, the word God, I was, as I said, I was raised Jewish. And the word God, it, you don't even say the word God. Um, you say a kind of substitute word for God, unless you're in the middle of prayers. You say Adashem and not the name for God. And when you write God, say in English, it's the, for very religious Jews, it's G-D. Because the word God is a, a placeholder for that which cannot be named. Love that. That which cannot be named. That's a... It's a, it's a bit more wordy than God, but it might be uh, appealing to some. That which cannot be named. And the Buddha has, has one of, in another list, I'll share with you, where he has what are called the, the four imponderables, where he said, if you try to think too much about, about this, you'll go crazy. One of them is the range of a mind in samadhi, in the highest states of concentration. Another is the range of a Buddha mind. Another is how karma 
the intricacies of karma, how it actually works. And the fourth one is how it all began. He said, don't go there. Doesn't name a creator or say anything about from where all of this comes. He just says, this is not a useful kind of reflection. The four imponderables. So God, that which cannot be named, is something so much larger than us. And yet, at least in the, in the devotional path, God, guru, you were, you are, you're devoted to a guru and through the guru, you experience God in that devotion. And then at some point, God, guru and self are one. So who is worshiping what? In the, in the uh, Ramayana, Hanuman, uh, who is the servant of of Ram, and maybe I, I don't know if I said this before, if I do. Uh, Hanuman says to, to Ram, when I, when I forget who I am, I serve you. When I remember who I am, you and I are one. So that's what's going on. It's, it's like a, you know, this, game of hide and seek that life is playing with itself. Oh yes, my guru or God, but what is it that's, that's worshiping? It's life worshiping itself through these forms. Ajahn Sumedho has this line I love. He says, when we are deeply, uh, when we go beyond that sense of self, he calls the experience, the shining through of the divine. Those are his words, the shining through of the divine. How could it not be who you are? You think everything else is part of this divine expression of consciousness, except for you? Uh-uh. No. That's it, to discover the shining through of the divine right inside of you. And I want to share with you a couple of other pointers to this. One is, uh, I read this in one uh, late evening Um, when I was closing out the last sitting for the day, but I didn't read it here. So this is from Anam Tupton's The Magic of Awareness. You are consciousness, and so am I. Consciousness is said to be groundless because it has no size, color, shape or location 
Some people think that consciousness is living in us. However, such a view is very limited in scope since this consciousness is all-pervading. This is how the Tibetans understand. We live in it. We are it. It enjoys eternal play. Now and then, consciousness forgets that its play is its own manifestation and gets lost in believing that it is separate from itself. That forgetfulness is the fundamental delusion that gives birth to all troubles, problems, and struggles in unending chain reactions. Since consciousness itself is not separate from enlightenment, consciousness being aware of itself can happen suddenly and break the chain created by our forgetfulness. Consciousness is all-pervading. We live in it. We are it. It enjoys eternal play. So that's one more expression. And here's, here's another one that I recently was introduced to from um, Kashmir Shaivism. Again, there are so many different pointers. Uh, and this is just so beautiful. It's, it's very much like that. And, and again, you know, I'm, I'm just saying different kind of pointers. And this really just resonates with me. But you won't find this in the Pali Canon. So you just take whatever is helpful and leave the rest. This is from the... Uh, the Pratya Binya Hridayam, realization of our true heart. And this is a translation by uh, a friend, Richard Miller, um, who's a wonderful yoga teacher. And it, it's, it's 20 lines, but I'm just going to read the, a few of them. This, which is mysterious, uncaused, and unnameable, yet called by many names, mystery, pure awareness, pure consciousness, parabrahman, this God, has given birth to the entire universe. By the power of its own free will, the mystery unfolds the entire cosmos out of itself, while always remaining one with its creations. Through the power of the mystery's own free will, it contracts and limits itself as body minds, that's us, 
who perceive separation and separate objects everywhere. Just do that again. By the power of the mystery's own free will, it contracts and limits itself as body minds who perceive separation. Though always undivided as a body mind, these five aggregates, it conceals itself in the belief of separation, perceiving itself as many separate forms, all distinct from one from the other. In its role as a separate soul, at times, it turns the soul's mind inward enabling it to remember the true state of affairs. That the entire play of birth, life, death, concealment, and revelation are simply itself disguised, delighting in its own display of apparently separate forms and names. Mm. I'll just read couple more concealed within the illusory veil of separation with mind turned inward its fire of awareness partially burns away all misperceptions of separation and suffering As the belief in separation dissolves, in a timeless moment of revelation, the entire universe, everything is realized to be simply its own self. In this moment, it absorbs everything back into itself. A big game of hide-and-seek. Just life playing with itself. Okay, so... Mm, oh, well. Might go a little bit over. So just... What does this really mean? Surrender. Just in that, not my will, but thy will. In that surrender, there's a, a purity of heart that we can get in touch with when the awareness points to something much deeper than this, these five aggregates, this, this body-mind. <clears throat> and I wanted to share a few aspects of Dharma practice that maybe we can play with. One is... <clears throat> Borrowing, when we don't feel this sense of devotion, we can borrow it from others. We can be moved by others' reverence, by others' bowing. I was, in, I was sitting in this room 
This is many years ago. I was sitting on a month-long retreat. This is after February. I sat in March, and I was sitting. I like to sit in my own rhythm, and sometimes I'm, it's like I'm the only one in the hall, like at 3 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning. It's like, oh, I've got it all to myself. And this one uh, morning, somebody comes into the hall, and I hear the footsteps, and I hear them go up to the front, and I couldn't help but be curious. Who is that person? And it's this young woman who comes up to the altar and lights a candle and just bows and in deep reverence for a minute or more. It was a long time. And it was so, I was so moved by her reverence and devotion. It just, it sparked that in me. Oh, wow. Yes. And it just really stoked my practice. We can have that. We can even borrow it. When I was, when I was younger, I was, um, uh, this is much younger, in the days of vinyl, I had a, a one musician, Reverend Gary Davis, blind Reverend Gary Davis, Harlem Street singer, who's this amazing guitarist. He was the one thing I played... Him and Doc Watson were the two things that I played for a year on my record player. Doc Watson, just because he was such a brilliant guitarist. But Reverend Gary Davis, it was, you got to move, you got to move. And I kept on playing it because I wanted to feel what he felt. And when I would play it, even now, I, play, I still play it now. My, my son, when I'm around, he's around, oh, you're playing Gary Davis again. <laughs> I just kind of feel it. You got to move. So we can borrow it from others. But we can experience it ourselves in just, just loving the moment. Just when there's a deep presence and everything comes alive. And you kind of see for yourself just the amazing miracle of what it is to be alive like um, Einstein says, there's two ways to go through this world. One is seeing nothing as a miracle, and the other is seeing everything as a miracle. And I'm, I'm sure most everybody here has gotten really in that moment of quiet where you're just amazed by life. You know, whether it's the, a turkey fanning its, its feathers or a lizard or sometimes you can just stare at a, at a plant and watch it grow. Wow. You know, somebody would think, wow, these people, what are they on? You know, <laughs> but it's like, wow, you're so connected to life that it just comes, the vibrancy, the vividness comes alive. I won't go into all the miracles and things that I've written about. So that's one way, just really loving the moment and letting your heart be touched by that 
aliveness. Another way is, I was talking with a, with a yogi today, just seeing that when you have a, some real deep state, if you happen to get there, it's grace. It, you might get there and then it's gone. You've noticed that no matter how good it is, it comes and it goes. So, and then you might say, oh, what, what can I do to get it back? And then I hope you realize that you didn't make it happen. You just did what you could to create the supportive conditions for it to happen all on its own. And when you realize it's so absurd to take credit, look what I did, look at that state that I just achieved. You're just completely missing. It's not you. You're just there for the ride. Wow. Okay. And what I, what I call a doorway to Anatta, where you see it's not me running this show, but I can do what I can to put a wholehearted effort in and then just be amazed by all the different places that consciousness can can go to. And then we can have amazing grace where we take refuge. How did I get here? How is it that I'm so fortunate enough to be sitting for a month or two months? What's that about? When you think of all the different possibilities in this world and you are sitting here because you love the Dharma so, and when you take refuge in the Buddha, you are taking refuge in that divinity which is in you. The shining through of the divine from Yoshal Kempo, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. Now that's not something you can take credit for. Hey, look at my Buddha nature. My Buddha nature is better than yours. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But it's seeing there's something that shines through you, that seed of awakening, that awakened heart, that is what you can take refuge in. And there can be a sense of awe and innocence and purity of heart and humility 
and childlike wonder. All of that is this essence of what's so much more than you. So taking refuge in the Buddha can be a reverent act. Not just the Buddha out there, the Buddha in here. That life has gifted you to express. Taking refuge in the Dharma. From the Mangala Sutta, to hear the Dharma at the right time. This is a blessing supreme. To discuss the Dharma, be with spiritual people, to practice the Dharma. This is a blessing supreme. How is it that you're here? When you take refuge in the Dharma, what does that really mean? What does taking refuge in the Dharma mean? Just, just say it for your, to yourself and see what comes up. Go in deeply. I take refuge in the Dharma. Let yourself really feel it. I surrender that life is giving me what I need in every moment to wake up. You can take it all the way. Just surrender to what that means and just relax and enjoy the ride. I take refuge in the Dharma. So I'm coming to the end. I just want to share two things. One is um, a conversation that I had with Joseph Goldstein. You know, a few months ago, we did this um, Ramdas event celebrating Ramdas and had all different teachers talking about their relationship and how how meaningful that relationship was and um, uh, and so devotion has been in my mind since that, before that, but certainly since that. And part of the day, I, I had this conversation with Joseph that was part of the day, asking him about things like love and soul and stuff like that. And I asked him about devotion. Well, you know, what, how do you relate to the, you were talking about, soul and loving awareness and all, you know, this is, how do you relate to devotion? So this is what he said, and I listened to it today and transcribed it, okay? So this is Joseph talking. I see devotion as a source of an amazing energy, energy to do anything. The quality of devotion is really an engine for manifesting, for undertaking a practice going deep. There are many skillful means of developing that quality of heart. <clears throat> For me, it wasn't the way of a great master devoting to a guru or master. That wasn't my temperament. For me, the quality of devotion was found in my devotion to the Dharma. I just fell in love with the practice and the teachings. In a way, that quality of devotion is essential. That's what keeps us going. What's interesting 
is to see that underneath the object, whether it's an impersonal dharma or a personal being, the quality of devotion is actually the same thing. Once we connect with that energy of devotion, then we find a particular form that resonates with us. Wei Wu Wei, this pithy philosopher, has this saying, disciples, devotees, what are most of them doing? Worshiping the teapot instead of the tea. It's the quality of devotion, this is Joseph, that's important, and there can be many teapots. It's the energy of devotion that's really important. We can put different names on it, but we want to connect deeply with that energy of devotion and connect with what it most deeply refers to. It could be love or awakening. It could be enlightenment or peace, but it's devotion to what we most value. The the form it takes is really not that important. It's whatever really speaks to us. So to end, and uh, I apologize for for going on, I want to share with you another multimedia experience. My favorite Dharma talk of all time. It's three minutes and 42 seconds. And this this is my doorway to devotion. That is opening to the mystery. So, hope it is useful.
and all kinds of wonderful happenings will come up for you. You will feel happy, and you will always help and love others, even those who are having trouble feeling happy and are even trying to make you forget the mystery. Someday you may meet someone who has felt the mystery really strong for a long time, so that person feels the mystery all the time and is always happy. Such a person is the best person to learn from about happiness and life and love. I hope you will remember to feel the mystery every day as long as you are awake forever. The best thing to tell anybody is to remember to feel this. I have been doing this for a long time, and it is the best and most important feeling of all. I am very happy I could tell you this. Maybe someday we will meet face to face. Maybe. Anyway, at least you and I will always know that at least one other person somewhere is remembering and feeling and loving the mystery right now.